Hey, and welcome to the Behavioral Business Blueprint, where we dive into the world of behavioral health entrepreneurship. We have a special guest. If you're in the business of behavioral health or follow the trends of health companies, you have heard the term mergers and acquisitions, or M&A for short. There is a company called the BRAF Group, BRAF Group, whose name is synonymous with M&A. The BRAF Group is ranked top five M&A companies. Today, we have Mr. Dexter BRAF of the BRAF Group. We're going to get to know Dexter better and learn how he has built a company that has closed more than 375 transactions and only on the sales side over the past 25 years. Dexter, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I am I'm truly amazed. I oh, since I've gotten to the behavioral health uh, side of things, I've been looking at mergers and acquisitions. And honestly, the first time I heard about M and A's was a post from you. I don't know. Somebody reposted it, and this was maybe two, three years ago. I had no idea what M and A was, and I said, "What's, what's a merger <laughs> acquisitions?" I had no idea people were selling companies, behavioral health companies. I know you could sell a car, you could sell a house, but a company, I had no idea. Uh, so I just, just started following you and just looking at what you're posting. And I'm, I'm looking at reports and I'm actually, I'm engaged with the reports um, because the, the pictures really helped me um, to visually see the numbers. Mm-hmm. I had a chance last year to meet you at the Autism Investor Summit. And I was blown away. You had me engaged <laughs> the whole time. And you're going over numbers. Um, and then I got to talk to you afterwards. And you're so personable. I was kind of nervous because I follow you on LinkedIn. I'm like, I don't know if does he really talk outside of this. And you're just a nice person to talk to and just so knowledgeable. I mean, to close that many deals, uh, did you ever see yourself closing that many? No. Not at all. Uh, when I started the company back in 1998, um, you know, my expectations were um, would never have been to be in business for 25 years and and go through as many transactions. We started with four people. We now have about 20. Uh, and um, yeah, never would have imagined both the, the length of time that we'd be doing this and the amount of success that we've had as a company. It's been very, very rewarding. I'm just curious, growing up, what did you want to be? <laughs> uh, well, believe it or not, um, my first master's degree, I have two. The first one is in recreation administration. And I used to run summer camps for kids. Um, that was my original um Direction in life. I worked for a not-for-profit wow. uh, Jewish agency so summer camp in the Philadelphia get into area. The behavioral and I business. was very interested um, in work. Hold on. We good? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? Oh, 
Okay. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay. I don't know what happened. Technology. Um, oh, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I'll get back to you. Uh, so I was running summer camps for kids. And that's what I enjoyed doing. Uh, and what, what I found, however, was that during that time frame, are, are we good right now? Arthur? Yeah, we're good. Yes. Okay. Um, I found that when you were uh, uh, in administration um, working with kids, you don't work with kids. You're working with adults and, uh, and, and dealing with uh, issues that have nothing to do with the things that I'd gotten into uh, working with kids in the first place. But I found that I had some facility for finance, which was something that was relatively new for me. Uh, and so I, I left that profession and got an entry-level position as a financial analyst for a home medical equipment company that was doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And part of my responsibility as a young, very wet behind the ears uh, <laughs> uh, analyst was analyzing deals that the company that I was working with was making. Uh, and I found that I enjoyed that. Uh, and, um, you know, flash forward uh, several years after that, that company was sold. Uh, I didn't want to work for the buyer and uh, found my found a home medical equipment mergers and acquisitions advisory company that was doing deals and wound up working with that company and learning the business of M&A in healthcare by working with that group. The totally different switch in my professions. That That is from kids to business. And I kind of can re somewhat relate because I went from kids, but I still work with kids but on the business side, but to go to analyzing deals that's and then you said medical home medical equipment. That's just something that I learned. Um, I'm familiar with you doing the behavioral health um, MA, mm -hmm. especially within autism. So when I'm you know doing my research, I'm like, wow, you're doing way more than just um, the behavioral health. You have home, you know, the home health equipment, which I'm very interested in looking into now that I saw that you do that because I'm on your site all the time, just looking at okay, which companies are out here, who's who's buying who. That's who I'm always curious about. Um. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, we cover so home medical equipment. That's the rental and sale of medical equipment for patients in their homes. Most typically, oxygen beds, wheelchairs, things of that nature. We also do um, healthcare staffing which are companies that provide temporary healthcare workers to mostly the hospitals that are uh, 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 gaps in their staff, uh, you know, uh, over the course of the year. We also represent home infusion therapy companies uh, that provide intravenous therapy to patients in their homes. So that the, and all manner of home health and hospice. So that's delivering uh, uh, nursing and paraprofessional services to patients in their home. The commonality amongst all of them is third-party payers. Uh, so there's usually government reimbursement involved and they are all very human uh, resource intensive. So we don't do manufacturing of medical equipment. We don't do development of pharmaceutical drugs. We don't do skilled nursing facilities, which is real estate. Uh, we like the human side of the business. Uh, and the uh, the reimbursement side of the business, because that's a mm -hmm. kind of unique skill set that we've developed over a period of time. I mean, gosh, with 
You've been in business for 25 years. Have you had any failures? And if you had, you know, what did you learn from those to last this well, long? Yeah, I mean, our first couple of years were really, really slow. Um, and as we were building our name and rep reputation, uh, we've always taken a long view of the marketplace. So we had to be patient and we were patient. Uh, we, we stuck to the cores, uh, the core principles that we had. Uh, and it took a while. It took our cash reserves got down fairly low. And I was looking at, <laughs> I was looking at my bank account going, huh, let's see how, let's see how much longer I can go. But we closed the deal like in 18 months after we started and it gave me a little bit more cash. And then we closed another. Uh, and then suddenly we were off to the races. But during that period of time, we've had years that were very poor years um, that for whatever reason, uh, deals don't close. Uh, you know, even doing 375 deals over 25 years, you know, that's 12 deals a year. So the reality of it is, is that you could go periods of time where you only do two or three um, because of whatever is going on. And so one of the lessons that I definitely learned in my business is to keep a lot of cash on our balance sheet because we had to be able to always continue to do what we needed to do to build our business without fear that we were going to run out of cash. And so uh, I kept a lot of cash on that balance sheet, which enabled us to weather periods of time that might have gotten a little bit slower. Um, so, you know, that's part of being in business is uh, that I've learned is, you know, be patient um, keep cash available so you don't have to worry as much, uh, and try and stick to your core principles. Uh, and that's not always that easy, uh, when things get a little bit, uh, things get a little bit dicey. I can imagine you said something there about the length of time that it takes to close a deal. You said 18 months and I'm always, I'm still new to this. And I thought I've recently went through something and it took about six or so months, but you said 18 months. Is that the yeah. normal time? Because I can imagine the companies you deal with, uh, their EBITDA uh, is is very large, <laughs> larger than what well, 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 first, are there, the, the 18 months was 18 months before we closed our first deal when I started the company. We didn't even have any clients at that point. So um, we were, it took probably six months to sign up for a client. So the normal amount of time it takes from signing a client to closing is generally, you know, I I wish I could say six months. It's not. It's probably closer to nine. And the reason for that is that the time it's taking to close deals after a letter of intent is signed has gotten longer and longer and longer over the time frame that I've been doing this business. It now takes as much as four to five months to close a deal that all the basic terms and conditions have already been outlined. Due diligence is taking much longer. All of the legal requirements to get a deal closed is taking longer. License transfer is taking longer. And now there are currently 13 states that are requiring that the states give approval to a healthcare transaction being closed. Oh, and wow. that's adding a tremendous amount of time. The amount of time that a company is on the market where we're, where we're actively talking to buyers 
and soliciting offers and limiting it and, and, and narrowing it down to a single proposal, that's only about 60 days. But there's prep time, which can take 60 to 90 days. And then there's that closing time, which has just gotten incredibly difficult and incredibly long. So for the BRAF group, you only what makes you only focus on the seller side and not help out the buyer as well? Um, is there a particular reason you went that route? Yeah, um, we we a long time ago we were were trying to decide if we wanted to do buy side work as well. That that would be representing buyers as well as representing sellers. The overwhelming uh, number of more competitors represent buyers and sellers. The, the place where I always felt uncomfortable about that was that because we are a niche company, we have, we have several niches, but they're all very small niches when you consider the old healthcare environment. What our concern was that if I represented a seller to a buyer that I had previously represented in the past on the buy side, it would be natural for my client, the seller, the seller, to be concerned whether or not I have some conflicts of interest because I am trying to sell them to someone with whom I've I have a con- I've had a contractual relationship with in the past, and so we decided that we didn't want our clients to ever feel that we have any conflicts of interest. So we decided that we were only going to stay on one side of the bargaining table, and that's on the sell side. The other thing. Arthur, is that on the buy side, it's a, it's an odd dynamic. I'm not knocking people that do buy side work, but it's not for us. Because conceptually speaking, if I earn a percentage of a buy side deal, then I've got two things that are inherently of conflict. I want you, the buyer, to buy the company no matter what. And I want you to pay as much as possible. And those are both counter to what the buyer's goals and objectives are. And so we decided a while back that we didn't want to put ourselves in that situation where uh, where there would be conflicts of interest. And, and that kind of leads me to have a question. I've always been curious because I don't care about the company, but are you allowed to tell me what is the largest amount you've sold a company for? Yeah. Um, hey, Arthur, let me just plug in for a second. Okay. Um, I could see my, uh, my power is... Uh... Dwindling. Give me one second. Okay. Thank you. So, um, we, you had said something which was not entirely true, is that we represent companies of all sizes. Um, so, you know, based on our, our minimum fees, if a company doesn't have a, about a million dollars worth of earnings, which is still a, a fair amount, um, it, we probably wouldn't be able to represent them. So the uh, the average size of our transactions range somewhere from five million in purchase price to twenty million, but the largest transaction we've done was for six hundred and fifty million. Um, so. We we have we have moved up the food chain a little bit and have been renting representing more companies that sell for fifty million dollars and up. But the reality of it is is that in healthcare services, if you limit yourself 
to only deals that are going to be, let's just use 50 million as a cutoff, that are only 50 million in purchase price, there aren't enough deals to be able to focus on such a narrow segment. And that's one of the things that we decided was important to us was that we would focus on the type of company and not the size of company. What that does for us is our managing directors can focus all of their time on a very, very narrow niche, which they couldn't do if they only were representing companies of a certain size. By by focusing on that niche, our managing directors that cover each of the individual areas that we operate in have extraordinary experience in it because that's all they do. So our people that do behavioral health care mergers and acquisitions do not do home medical equipment. They don't do pharmacy services. They don't do home health and hospice. They don't do healthcare staffing. They only do behavioral, which means that every conversation they have, every financial statement they look at, every buyer they talk to, every conference they go to is all within their very, very narrow niche. And so their expertise in the space is better than that of many of our competitors who aren't able to specialize in that narrow over niche because they have a size requirement in order to do their deals. They wouldn't have enough deal flow to be able to support their operation by doing it that way. And you go to a lot of conferences. I mean, I follow you on LinkedIn and it seems every month you're somewhere new. Do you plan on slowing down anytime soon or it's just, until yeah. you just can't go anymore. No, no actually, actually this year I've, I'm, I'm cutting down on the conferences. Uh, met with some of my people last year was extremely busy. Um, one of the things that happened and I'm not, I don't feel bad about this, but we uh, got engaged with a, a group called aging media, which puts on conferences in behavioral mm-hmm. healthcare, in home health and hospice in, um, uh, 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 addictions, uh, and some other areas. And we became a, uh, a major sponsor of all of their events. And they themselves do about eight events a year. And so, uh, and we do the opening session at most of those events. And that's something that is usually my purview. And by once we did that, Essentially, I was on the road two or three times every month. And I was, I said to my team this past year, I said, I've, I've got to cut back a little bit. So (laughs) we're still doing a lot. I'm still going to a lot of conferences. I have uh, a, um, a behavioral conference actually coming up in, I don't know, three weeks or so. Uh, And, uh, but, but the number that I'll be doing is going to, Going to get cut back a little bit, as my people can certainly handle them without me, without a question. Well, I hope I see you in October. Uh, I think the behavioral health, the aging, which you just mentioned, they have a conference in Dallas, and I plan to go to that one. So I hope I will see you there, even if you're not speaking there. Now, I, I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but probably. But are you going back to the Autism Investor Summit? Not this year. I said I was going to take a break, um, but I'm going to go the following year since I'm into a different kind of business. I want to be able to talk even more about it. Um, sure. So I'll be there next year for sure. I'm sure. Well, if, if you attend behavioral health conferences, you will run into me. Okay. So I have, I'm going to end this with one more question that I have. 
it's something that we've been talking about, especially within behavioral health, especially ABA, this value-based care. How do you see that affecting valuations of companies um, that are going this route? Because it's still new, but there are some people that are gun-ho and they're all in for it. So I'm just curious to get your take on all of this. It's, it's something that we are still trying to understand uh, ourselves. Um, we sponsored through Aging Media a survey uh, that came out oh, a month ago. <clears throat> and one of the questions that I added to the survey is, what percentage of your revenues are coming from some sort of an alternative payment model, uh, which would be a value-based care scenario? And I was both not surprised and extremely surprised by the answers we got. I expected that we would see the overwhelming majority of people uh, you know, generating little to no revenue from value-based care. And that was the case. But what I didn't expect to see was, and I'm, I, I can't quote you the exact numbers, but up to about 10% of the respondents derived more than, I think it was 30 or 40% of their revenues from value-based care, which means that there are some people out there that are really, as you said, gung-ho and are really developing their expertise within that side of the market. So it's like a tale of two cities. There's what we expected was the, the large group of folks that don't have anything to do with it, but there are some people that have a lot to do with it. And so uh, from a long-term value perspective, um, this is a long-term thing. But if the more that value-based purchasing and al these alternative payment models and uh, uh, exclusive contractual relationships develop, that is a threat to people that don't have those contracts. Um, and it's not enough now where I'd be like, you know, um, you know, running to the hills if I don't have a value-based contract. Uh, but the market is moving in that direction and a larger and larger percentage of business is going to be captured under some of these arrangements. And that's a threat to independent providers that do not have those relationships. When that's going to be something, something that's going to be troublesome, I don't know. I'm, I would imagine it's going to take a long time. But if you were ask, going to ask me to project 10 years in the future, <laughs> I think a lot of that business is going to be on the uh, is going to be in contractual relationships with uh, you know some global payments. So what we recommend for people that ask, not many people ask, but if they do, we think that every provider should try to just get into some small uh, uh, value based contractual relationship. Uh, if for no other reason than to just to learn it and fail at it if they fail at it, because it's something that it's a skill set that is likely to be tapped into at some point, you know, in the near future, that's going to be really important. And it's something that you got to learn. You've got to figure out how to price them. You have to figure out how to negotiate the agreements. You have to figure out what your value proposition is. And so having the opportunity to participate even in a small way with a small contract 
is something that we recommend people to do. They don't have to go in, mm-hmm. you know, all in, but just to learn it, doing a pilot program would probably be a wise thing for almost anybody to do. Well, you just heard it here from the MA King himself, Dexter Braff. <laughs> Dexter, if people want to find you, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, the easiest thing would be just to hop onto our website, which has all of the uh, contact information and information about our firm. And that's thebraffgroup.com. Okay, well, thank you all for attending uh, this podcast episode with Dexter Braff. You saw where to reach him. You can reach me also at thebizbehavior at gmail.com. And I'm always on LinkedIn at Arthur Hairston.